I want us to pray as we start, but let me tell you why I want us to pray. Paul, in the book of First Timothy, said that um, he wanted people to take hold of life that is truly life. I don't think it's done very much. It's only been the last few years of my life that I think I begin to understand a little bit of what Paul meant when he said that. Just to begin to get a glimpse of what it means to know God, it seems like a far-off reality to me most of the time, but once in a while I get a glimpse. I recall when I was a kid, my dad said a lot of things to me that I couldn't follow, but one of the things that was most mystifying to me was a sentence that there were times that the reality of God became so real for him that he begged God to shut it off. It was overwhelming. It was too much. Lord, take it away. I can't handle all of this. As a kid, I'd hear that and say, what are you talking about? I'm bored with my Sunday school class. I have devotions once in a while, but I, have, I get nothing out of it. And you talk about a reality of which I know very, very little. I've told my kids the very same sentence my father told me now. I'm aware that there really is a life that's life, that's truly life, and I would guess that the great majority of Christians know very little about that. I really want this chapel hour to move us towards taking hold of life as truly life. And I can't make that happen, but the Spirit of God can. Pray with me as we start. Lord Jesus, when you died, that we might have life. And you talked about that being an abundant life. An abundant life for Paul who was beaten and shipwrecked whose ministry seemed to fail in so many ways toward the end of his life he saw churches that he had started that weren't doing well and yet Lord somehow he understood what it means to take hold of life as truly life Father my prayer today is that you'll shake us up you'll undermine false confidences that we have in ourselves that you'll rip us up in ways that need to be done Father, all because you want us to experience more of yourself because you love us so much. And you know that real pleasure, real joy are at your right hand. And we settle for so much less. Father, we do you no favors when we settle for less than what you offer. Teach us to move towards you and use today to encourage that process just a little bit. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Take your Bibles and I want us to read a couple of texts as we get started today. We're going to go through a few verses. First of all, in Titus, Titus chapter 2, look at it with me. And you'll catch the theme of these verses as I read them. Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. The grace of God that brings salvation, Titus chapter 2 and verse 11, has appeared to all men. And this grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And I've been taught that. When I'm in a hotel and there's a cable TV and I'm tempted, do I know what it means to have the grace of God teach me to say no to wrong passions? The grace of God teaches me to live a self-controlled life. I wonder if I've learned much about that. Upright, godly lives in this present age. And notice then Paul contrasts this present age and the life he's called us to live now with an expectation to live in a certain way while we wait for the blessed hope the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Just notice, as we look at that passage for just a very brief moment, that godly living is connected with waiting for what comes later. Put that in your mind for a moment. Turn back to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 
2 Timothy chapter 4, and listen to Paul as he was an older man looking back on his ministry, looking back on his Christian life, and listen to what he says in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 6. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering. The time has come for my departure. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Talking about some passionate waiting. Now it's not just waiting, but now it's passionate waiting. Longing, And somehow Paul says that his life was lived in the passionate expectation of what was ahead. Now look at 1 John 3. One more verse after this. A total of four verses will make the last one essentially our text for the day. The first three building up to our theme. 1 John chapter 3. And again, the future is in view, as in verse 2, John says, Dear friends, 1 John 3 and verse 2, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him, and I presume that means more than just the fact that you're a Christian, but I presume he's talking about some sort of a passionate longing that's gripped your soul. There's not too many more important questions you can ask than this one. What has really gripped your soul? What matters? What deeply, deeply matters? Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Notice again that people who are fixed on the hope of what God will yet do, somehow that has an effect on how you live today. That's hard for younger folks to see. It really is. Just beginning to be obvious to me a little bit. Romans chapter 8. Take a look at that. Last verse. Romans chapter 8. In verse 22, Paul says this, Romans 8 and verse 22, We know that the whole creation has been groaning. Strong word. Some real pain compared to childbirth now. We know that the whole creation has been groaning. There's an affective, a subjective reality about it. As in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time, and not only the creation, but also we, ourselves, we Christians, we Christians, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, who know how things are supposed to be, we're aware of something in our souls which says that the way things are now is not the way they're supposed to be. I find within me a desire for something which I do not have. Life at its best does not satisfy some real pocket within me. We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. There's the same thing. The passionate expectation of the Lord's return. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. I've been married for 20 years. We have two boys. And um, I learned shortly after my wife and I were married, within about two years, I learned that the statement that is often made is true, that when wives become pregnant, they change. And they change radically and in surprising sorts of ways. One night we were lying in bed about 11 o'clock at night. And I was tired. I hadn't fallen asleep yet. And my wife, who was now about six months pregnant, 
put her hand on my shoulder and said something terribly insincere. She didn't say what she meant at all. She said, Larry, are you awake? Now, she wasn't really interested in knowing whether I was awake. She was far more interested in seeing to it that I rapidly became awake. Larry, are you awake? And I heard her. And when you're married, you'll know how to handle that. You basically snore a little bit louder, <laughs> hoping you'll put her off, because you have no desire to respond to her at that hour of the evening. It seems to be an ungodly thing to do. And I laid there and kind of snore a little bit, and she began to get a little more violent. She began to shake me and said, Larry, are you awake? Are you awake? And finally, of course I'm awake. You've been hitting me for the last minute and a half. I'm wide awake. What do you want? She sat back and she said, I'm hungry. I said, thanks for sharing. She said, I'm hungry for cheesecake. She was pregnant. I'm hungry for cheesecake. I said, we don't have any cheesecake in the house. She says, yeah, but the Round Barn restaurant downtown does. I said, how about a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? I'll make you grilled cheese. I'll make you anything. I don't want to get you some cheesecake from the Round Barn. And my wife's response was just so insistent. She said, have you forgotten I'm burying your child? <laughs> this happens to pregnant women and you ought to be sensitive to this. Someday you might write a book on marriage. You're going to have to get prepared. So I, good husband that I am, stumbled out of bed, went down to the round barn, which is a very fancy restaurant in the town in which we were living, in my pajamas and bathrobe and slippers. Walked in, the mater d' in tux saw me coming and asked what I wanted, and I said, I'd like a piece of your cheesecake, please. Takeout service, if you have it. And uh, he looked at me strange and said, my wife is pregnant, and he understood. <laughs> Do you see that, that in my wife, there was an appetite, an appetite for something that could be satisfied by nothing other than what she deeply wanted? In other words, there was a condition in which my wife was in. She was in a condition which somehow created an appetite for something that nothing other than what she longed for would satisfy. You see, Paul's talking about that. Paul's talking about some kind of a deep longing within my soul, some sort of a thirsting, some sort of a panting after God, some sort of a fixation. A passionate longing for what it is to know God, to pursue Him in such a way, to want so much for Him to come, that when He says, I'm going to come, my response is, even so, come Lord Jesus, that's what life is all about. Knowing you, being with you, I'm living now as a stranger and pilgrim for what's going to be later, that's what it's all about, and I passionately long for that, and nothing less is going to satisfy me, that's what I'm after. And don't give me anything substitute, don't give me a grilled cheese or a peanut butter and jelly, I know what I want. And you can't get me off the track, because that's what I'm after. Something has happened to me. I'm in a condition, Paul is saying. I'm in a condition where I have a single-minded determination to reach that which I know satisfies the core of my soul. And my question, as we think about Romans 8, 22 and 23 particularly today, my question is this. How do we develop that kind of an appetite? How do we develop that kind of an appetite? The kind of an appetite for the Lord and for all that he's going to do later. How do we develop an appetite for him and for heaven, for being with him, 
an appetite that is so consuming, that is so deeply lodged in the core of our being that it really affects all that we do. That as we live now, we wait eagerly. That as we think about what's coming, we purify ourselves because we don't want to be found unworthy because we believe that purifying ourselves and living a godly life and saying no to worldly passions somehow is consistent with moving towards that which our soul desires. How do we develop that kind of an appetite? And I really hope that you're going to be very honest with yourselves this morning. I don't think I've had much of that appetite for most of my Christian life. I have an appetite for all kinds of things, but not that. Appetite for getting ahead, appetite for finishing my education, getting my PhD, appetite for establishing myself in practice, appetite for getting a few books written. I've had lots of appetites, but as I look carefully into my soul, I don't know if I see all that I want to see. I think maybe a little more in recent years, maybe. Of an appetite for, 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 for God, an appetite to know Him. Is that, is that core? How do we develop that? Let me suggest there's a key that's given in Romans 8, and we're going to spend the rest of our time talking about it. There's a key for how to develop this appetite. And in one word, the answer is groaning. In one word, the answer is groaning. Paul says, as I look around, facing the reality of the fact that I live in a fallen world, I find myself groaning inwardly, and it follows then, waiting eagerly. If you want to wait eagerly, if you want to wait eagerly, fervently, passionately for the Lord's return, if you're living for the future, if you're living with the purposes of God in view, if you're living with heaven coming up as what you're really after, if you're fighting in this good fight so you can finally be with Him someday, if that's where your mind is fixed, in order to get there, the precondition is to learn what it means to face disappointment today. You see, none of us are going to give up what we have until we're dissatisfied with it. None of us is going to give up something and replace it with something else until what we have we see as absolutely unsatisfying to our souls. Paul talks about groaning inwardly. What does that mean? A woman that um, we worked with a year or two ago about 25 years old, told us the following story. She said that, um, that her mother had died when she was just a little girl. Her mother had died when she was about four. And she had been told at the time that, um, that the reason her mother had died was from a heart attack, natural causes. Things had happened and she developed a disease and a, something went wrong and her heart stopped and she died and that was very sad. And this four-year-old girl was told that, that her mother had died from natural causes. And she believed that up until about age 20, 19 or 20, when she was told the truth. What actually had happened to this woman, to this mother of this little girl, well, she became aware that her husband was having an affair and was about to divorce her and she couldn't handle it and she committed suicide. That was a real story. But this girl, this daughter, hadn't known that until just five years prior to talking with me. And she told me five years ago, I learned that that night, mother came into my bedroom and she said, Honey, will you go sleep with your dad? I'm not feeling well. I need to sleep in your bed tonight. And that night, in the little girl's bed, she overdosed and killed herself. Now, you're age 20. You're that girl at age 20 and you learn that. How do you feel? Any struggle associated with that? How do you feel about your plans to go, next home, to go home next weekend and visit your dad with his new wife? Any emotions? Any anger? Any fear? Any trouble? 
Any anguish? Any other sense of the reality of living in a fallen world where things like that happen? What do you do with that? It hurts. You live in a fallen world. And tough things happen. Maybe not things that dramatically bad to most of us, although some of you likely have experienced something similar. What do you do with it? What this girl did was very clear. She said to me that the pain was so bad, my mind was flooded with thoughts of my mother that night, 16 years ago when I was 20, when I learned about this, 16 years ago when I was 4, my mind was flooded with the idea of mother in her desolation, in her despair, in her frustration, in her hurt, going into the bathroom and grabbing just all the pills she could find and stuffing them down her mouth and going to the bed, to my bed, to my little girl's bed, 16 years ago and dying. All I could think about was mother lying there miserable, putting pills in her mouth. And dad lying in bed, not caring because he wanted to dump her for some other girl. Now, that hurts. And she said, when the pain came into my soul, it was so searing that I had one purpose in my mind, and that was, finish the sentence, to not feel that pain. Does that make sense? Anybody ever have a headache? What do you want to do with it? You know, as I'm talking here in this chapel service, you get a bad headache, what are you going to want to do? You're not going to want to listen. Maybe you don't want to listen now, but if you get a headache, you're going to want to listen less. Now, if your headache's real bad, you're going to say, I wish the guy would stop. I'm sitting in the front row. I feel awkward leaving. I want to go and find some aspirin. When you hurt bad, what do you want to do? You want to end the hurt. And what she did, she was a Christian girl involved with a Christian organization, and she went to the Scriptures. Is it right to go to the Scriptures for comfort? Of course it is. Is it right to go to God for comfort? Yes, He's a God of all comfort. She went to the Scriptures, though, in a subtly different way. She went to the Scripture and began memorizing large chunks of Scripture whenever she, thought, whenever she felt bad about the memories of her mother who was dead and her dad who was living with his new wife. What was her purpose in going to the Bible? To learn how to move towards her dad as a Christian woman? That had nothing to do with it. Her purpose in going to the Bible was, I've got to end the pain that I feel. Let me suggest one of the things that we do with the disappointment that we feel in our lives, with the hurt that we experience, is do our best to get away from it. Most natural thing in the world. And if that's the way you handle the disappointment in your lives, you're not going to be growing in your passionate longing for the coming of the Lord. It's not going to happen. You're going to be living for relief of pain, period. Fundamentally, that's going to be your controlling motivation. A fellow just last week told me this story. That when he was 15, he was showing great promise as a baseball player. He was very, very talented, and in his um, local high school situation, he was already on the high school team at age 15, unusual ability, and people were talking about him as having the, the chance to become a, a, a professional baseball player. He was looking forward to a career, and just at the, as he turned 16, right around there, he had an injury, and his baseball career was totally gone. And no longer was baseball a possibility, and it, and it devastated him. And he said for two years, he went into depression. For two years, he struggled with a whole loss of everything that meant so much to him up at that, that point. Now you're counseling with this guy. You be the counselor. He's a guy now who's 26 years old, married, fighting a lot with his wife, losing his temper a great deal, been a youth pastor for a number of years. And he comes to me for help. He tells me that story. And he says, I lost my baseball career 
And I really felt destroyed by that, and I was depressed by it. And I guess whatever my anger problems are today, and I yell at my wife, and I'm not a very good Christian in so many ways. I look pretty good in church, but at home I'm not so good. And I guess it has to do with how how destroyed I've been by the lack of um, a baseball career. And because I'm very angry at God about that. Is that the problem, do you suppose? And I said to him, tell me, see if you'd have asked this question. I said to him, tell me, how'd your dad respond during those couple years of your depression? And he just kind of smiled and he said, um, no, he didn't. What do you mean he didn't? Did he ever come to you and say, son, that's got to be hard. Listen, it's going to be hard to get a perspective on this from a Christian point of view. Yes, there's a God who's sovereign. He'll do what he wants, but he really has a purpose for your life. There's value to you and you can live and let me encourage you and let me weep with you over this misfortune, which from your perspective now destroys your life. But let me guide you into seeing that there really is a life you can take hold of that's truly life. Did your dad do all that? Christian man, no, he never did that once. He said one sentence to me in two years about the subject. What was that? You got a bad attitude. Get out of it. Now, you be that boy. How do you feel? You disappointed at all? I asked him that question. I said, you tell me how your dad handled it. And um, I want to know how you feel as you think about the fact that your dad really let you down. Oh, he said, I, I don't feel anything about it. I, I don't suppose, you know, I mean, dad didn't know what to do. It's my problem, not his. What do we do with a disappointment in our lives? Anybody? Let me ask a dangerous question. Anybody disappointed in your parents? I have really good parents, godly people, both living in South Carolina, talk to them regularly, visit with them as often as I can, love them deeply. Good parents, godly parents, and you know what? They let me down. I think I'm a fairly good dad. I let my kids down. I did once about six years ago. And almost every day before and since. What do you do with the fact that we live in a world where no relationship provides what we really want? Do we pretend it isn't so bad? Do we make excuses? Well, Dad's doing the best he could. Do we learn to hate them for their how bad they've been? What do we do? Maybe we're supposed to groan inwardly over the fact that we were built for what is not now. Did you follow that? Maybe we're supposed to groan inwardly because of the fact that I was built for a quality of relationship which I have never known in any relationship I have. And I've got great parents and a great wife and great kids and, a, and great friends who love me and I love them and mean the world to me and I mean the world to some other people. Yeah, I was built for a quality of relationship that my dad couldn't provide for me. My wife can't provide for me. My kids at their best can't provide for me. My best friend Dan at his best can't provide for me. Isn't there an ache in your souls? Are you honest enough to acknowledge that? Are you honest enough to acknowledge that no matter how good your parents are, some of you have parents that are drunks and are people that have been unkind to you, and some of you have been molested, and some of you have been abused, and some of you have come from great Christian homes. The whole span, are we honest enough to acknowledge the fact that deep in the core of my being, I long for what I've never really had in fullness from anybody, ever. Do you ache? Do you ache? 
Do you face that you long for what you don't have? One of the great heresies, in my mind, of modern Christianity is that somehow we communicate the idea that if you live the Christian life in a certain way, you don't have to hurt. Whether it's the folks over here in the charismatic wing who are saying if you have the second blessing, if you surrender the Spirit of God in some unique sort of a mystical way, then the Spirit of God will move into your life and you'll be baptized in a special way that will relieve all pain from your life and you'll have nothing but effervescent joy for the rest of your days. In other words, we can become more spiritual than Jesus who was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But even in the non-charismatic wing... So often our message is, if you get busy for Jesus, if you get busy with your devotional life, have you witnessed recently? Are you living obediently? Are you doing what you ought to do? Is that a good message to say? Of course it is. We ought to be witnessing. We ought to be having devotions. We ought to be living obediently. Sure, those are the exhortations of the Word of God. Should we do it? But so many times we're exhorted to do that with the underlying message that if we do it, what's going to happen to the ache in our souls? We're not going to experience it. Folks, this side of glory is not going to happen. Never believe a promise that you can have the blessings of heaven now because you can't. Now it's a down payment. Now it's a taste of the goodness of God. It's the banquet that's later. Don't feel guilty about the fact that you hurt. Don't feel guilty about the fact that when Christmas vacation comes and you go home to your parents, there's mixed feelings about it. I talked to a girl recently who was going home from from college to visit with her mom and dad. She hadn't been home for some months. We were chatting conversationally, and I said, you looking forward to it? Yeah, I really am. What's going to be good about it? Oh, it's just so good to see mom and dad. It's been four or five months. We're going to catch up a lot. Well, what are you going to do? Well, mom and I go shopping. We just always love going shopping, kind of a mother-daughter thing for years, and we just gab all the time and have a great time. And how about your dad? Yeah, well, dad, he takes me out for breakfast whenever I go home. It's just great. We got, you know, four kids in a family, and Dad's habit has been to take out his kids one-on-one -on -one for breakfast all these years. And boy, it means the world to me. It's just so much fun, you know, just to be there with my dad, dad and daughter date kind of a thing. How's that breakfast going to go? Well, what do you mean? Well, he's going to ask you questions like, honey, how's it going? He's going to look in the eye and say, I really deeply care, and I want to know what's happening in your life. Because I just want you to know that whatever's there, I'm there for you. I accept you, I care, and I'm involved. And she began to tear up a little bit and got a little bit defensive and stiff and said, Dad isn't good at asking questions. Well, as a matter of fact, she said, upon further probing, Dad's the kind of man who has struggled with his career for so many years that we as a family have all tried to gather around to mobilize on behalf of Dad. He's a weak man. We try to keep him feeling good about himself. Isn't that hard? You go to your physician and try to reassure him as he does surgery on you? It's all right, doctor. You'll be all right. Remember, I had a doctor in Florida. He wasn't real sure of himself. That's hard. I went to this doctor and um, had a particular symptom, and he examined me, and he said, um, well, I think maybe um, you ought to have a particular test. What do you think? I said, uh, what I think really doesn't strike me as terribly important. You're the doctor. What do you think? He said, well, I've given the test before, and, you know, it isn't always very helpful, but sometimes it helps a little bit, and I don't know, maybe it'd be a good thing to give a whirl to. You see, when you look for strength to someone that doesn't provide it, you feel terribly insecure. 
Because all of us are, are vulnerable, dependent beings. I know I can't make it in life without help. I, I'm not enough for myself. As Schaefer puts it, I'm not my own final point of integration. I need outside help desperately. I'm finite. I'm limited. Where do we all look to for strength? Nobody goes after God naturally. We all go someplace else. The most natural people we go to is our folks. And require them to be strong in ways they can't be and end up disappointed but pretending we're not. This girl said to me, no, dad isn't very good at asking questions. We take care of dad. And I said, isn't that hard for you? She said, no, it's fine. It's no problem. We're just there for dad. I love dad. He's a good guy. She came back from her Christmas vacation. I talked to her afterwards just a little while ago. How did it go? How'd your breakfast with dad go? She said, um, just what I thought happened. Just what I thought was going to happen is exactly what happened. I said, how did you feel in the middle of that as your dad kind of told you all about what he was doing, but in the course of an hour and a half over breakfast never once said, honey, how are you doing? And meant it by listening to what you had to say. How'd you, how'd you feel? And her response was, um, I, I don't know. And I said, that's not true. You do. You're scared to admit it. Tears began coming down her cheeks and she said, I've longed so much for a strong man to move towards me and to care, to care deeply. But why do you want me to face all this pain, she said. What, do you have a thing on pain or something? I mean, isn't the Christian life supposed to be joyful? Prophet of gloom and doom, you're fun to be around. Maybe there's a value to facing our disappointments. And maybe the value to facing our disappointments is to begin to realize in the core of our souls, I long for what I've never had. And in the core of my soul, what I long for, that my good father, my good mother, my good wife, my good kids, my good friends have never provided me, makes me so vulnerable, and I find myself... Panting, not after more things, not after more relationships, because they don't really satisfy. I find myself panting after the one who tells me I'm enough for you, and I'm strong, and you can count on me. And I've caught every tear in a bottle. I'm keeping it stored up. I love you. I care about you. Your hairs are numbered. I'm interested in you. And I say, that's what I want, but I'm never going to be fixed on being able to say, that's what I want, and pursuing him, I don't believe, until first I groan over the fact nothing else does the job. Want to become fixed on the hope of the Lord's coming? Enter the fact that what you have now isn't what you want. And when you do that, when you do enter more and more into the reality of the fact that what you have now is not what you want, that can cause some problems. You can become bitter. You can become really bitter. Dad, let me down. You got that right, counselor. Appreciate you pointing it out to me. Now I can't stand the guy. I'm not going to go home again as long as I live. That's biblical, huh? Boy, I sure don't want to promote that. A couple of months ago, Saturday morning, I woke up and we had plans for the day. My plan was for my younger son, Kenny, and I, we're going to go to Fort Wayne. Now, if you lived in Warsaw, Indiana, you'd know that's a big deal to go to Fort Wayne. Any chance to get out of Warsaw, Indiana, no matter where it is, is a big deal. And um, 
might work for the Chamber of Commerce for Warsaw, Indiana. And we were going to go to Fort Wayne, Kenny and I, that day, and uh, we were going to go looking for cars. It's going to be a fun day, and I was looking forward to it. A week ahead of time, we had planned it and going to to spend the day with my son, having a good time looking at cars in Fort Wayne, having some dinner, doing some shopping. I woke up that morning and I found myself uniquely unmotivated to get up and go be with Kenny. I found myself saying, I don't really feel like going to Fort Wayne today. I'd rather stay in Warsaw. That tipped me off. Something was terribly deranged within me. And I thought, well, why don't I not want to go to Fort Wayne with Ken? Ken's a good kid. I love my son. Fun to be with. We have good times. And I began to say, I began to feel, I began to realize as I laid there in bed and just kind of pondered it at 7.30, 8 o'clock in the morning, just lying there and not getting up terribly early. It was a relaxing day and going to leave around 9 or 10 that morning. I began to realize that, that there were longings in my soul that I was hoping would be satisfied today began to realize that, that I love my son very much. My older son's away at college, and I miss him a bunch, and my younger son's there, and I'm going to be with my younger son now. And began to say to myself, you know, I want this day to really touch me and to be just a great day. began to realize I'm, I'm longing for simply what isn't available. This day at its best isn't going to really satisfy me. Don't ask of your relationships more than what they can provide. No relationship in the world can touch your soul the way you want to be touched. Even a great relationship with your kid on a fun day in Fort Wayne, that doesn't do it. And I found myself saying, no matter how good this day goes, it's not going to be enough for me. Something's wrong with this day already, and throughout the rest of the day, something's going to be wrong. It's not going to be enough. I'm going to be unhappy, so why bother with the whole thing? I began to say to myself... And I said, wait a minute, I just missed the whole Christian perspective on this. I missed the whole thing. The Lord said, yes, Larry, of course you've got longings for more than what this day can provide. Don't require of this day what only heaven can provide. Regard this day not as an opportunity for you to find satisfaction for your longings. Regard this day as an opportunity for you to love your kid. You see, if I'm looking to you for satisfaction for my longings, I can't love you at the same time. I'm going to be manipulating you, depending on you, requiring you to come through. But as I began to face the fact that the day with my son at its best was going to be disappointing, then I began to be free. Now follow this point, it's subtle. Then I began to realize I was free from requiring this day to do what my soul wanted. I didn't have to require this day to satisfy me, because my Heavenly Father is taking care of that department. My soul is kept by his power against that day. The day is coming when there will be no more tears in my eyes, when there will be no more sadness in my soul, when everything will be what it ought to be. Until that day, what I have to face is that something's wrong with everything. The best relationship in the world isn't enough. Something's wrong with everything. And that frees me then to get up, and I found my, my whole attitude changing. I found myself wanting to get up and going to be with my son that day, and we had a great day. We had a really good time. If you asked me, did it satisfy me? I would say, of course not. It was great. Does that make sense? <laughs> See, it didn't satisfy me the way God does, but if you don't require it to, then you're free to move into your world. Who's let you down? 
you're sitting next to somebody who's let you down, probably, if you're honest about it. You got a roommate that isn't what you want in some ways. You've asked for a change. When you're married, you'll be asking for a change. When you have kids, you'll be asking for replacements. How are you going to live in a world where something's wrong with everything? How are you going to pull it off? By not demanding that it be different. By entering into the reality of groaning. I live in a world that's imperfect. And I'm part of that imperfect world. And I let you down. And you let me down. And God says, get together. And my response is, do you mind if I keep my distance? Why should I get close to people who are guaranteed to disappoint me? Well, because you aren't there to get your needs met. You aren't there to find satisfaction. You've entrusted your soul to me. Now, you want to take hold of life that's truly life. Life is realizing that your soul has been entrusted to me, and I'm doing a real good job of taking care of that. The day is coming when if you could see that day now, you'd realize that all the sufferings today are not worthy to be compared with the weight of glory that's ahead. If you understood that, Larry, and I call upon you to understand it now, I want you to take hold of the life that's yours. I've given you all that you need, and I want you to move into other people's lives when they disappoint you, when they let you down, when your dad will not ask you questions over breakfast table, you go home and ask him more questions. Acknowledging to yourself that you're hurt. And maybe the time will come when you can honestly say, Dad, I don't think we're very close. Yes, I've been hurt. There's been difficulties in my life. But now you're saying it not to get even with the guy and trying to get him to be nice to you. Now you're saying it because you're sharing, moving towards closeness, if that's at all possible. But your underlying motivation is love. You aren't there to get. You're there to give. How do you manage to keep that up? How do you manage to keep up giving when you don't get what you want? You keep waiting. You groan inwardly, and you wait eagerly. My last thought is this, and we're going to stop. If you hear what I'm saying, and I trust many of you are, what I'm suggesting to you is that when you hurt, don't make that motivation for getting busier as a Christian. Don't define the essence of spirituality how many meetings you go to. Don't define the measure of maturity, how involved you are in Christian things. Don't define the measure of maturity, how much time you spend in devotions. Don't hear me knocking any of those things. We're to redeem the time. We're to be busily involved for the Lord. We're to be seeing that the fields are white unto harvest and moving out for the reaping that's there. We're to be doing all that. We're to be spending time in God's Word. We're to be learning God's Word. But my concern is, so many times, we do all these things as driven, pressured people so that, what? We can relieve the ache. Because who wants to groan? And if I get real busy, I won't feel bad anymore. Man, I'm going to be so spiritual. I'm going to just be happy. You're going to watch me fly. Watch! And I end up doing all these great things, and inside I get, I get burnt out and disillusioned and feel like quitting. Maybe as opposed to that, you enter your groaning. You face it. You face the ache. You realize that heaven's the only cure. The coming of the Lord Jesus, to take me to himself and to take you to himself, that's where every disappointment you felt is going to be reversed. That's where every way in which you've been let down by somebody else is going to go away. That's where every way you've let somebody else down that wrecks you with guilt as you think about it sometimes. That's where it's all going to be reversed. The ache in your souls will go away. 
No more tears, no more crying, no more sorrow. Until then, sure, get busy. Spend time in the scripture. Witness. But not for the purpose of getting rid of the ache. Groan. Face it. Acknowledge it. Enter it. Don't pretend. And when you groan inwardly, you either suicide because the pain's too great, or you place your fervent, passionate confidence in the coming of Christ. When things go bad and your life falls apart, and you're scared to death about things that are happening in your life, and you're hurt more than you knew you could hurt, if you don't know a better days ahead, you're not going to make it. Enter your pain. Don't deny it. Don't blunt it. And cause it to make you look forward to the day when the Lord comes back. Let's pray.